0: All right, welcome back to Are You a Robot? Today, we're talking with Fionn Lee Madden. Let's hear a little introduction from her and then I'll give you the latest happenings with Are You a Robot? And then we'll jump right into this episode.
1: Hi, I'm very happy to be here. My name is Fionn Lee Madden. I'm based in Toronto, Canada. Uh, my role right now, I am the COO and co-founder of Fairly AI. We are building an API-driven toolkit to keep your AI responsible and regulated. What it is, is a governance, risk, and compliance control protocol to keep your AI safe using an established model risk management framework that has been used in financial services for the last decade since the last financial crisis.
0: So in case you don't know what we are doing here at Are You a Robot? This is a series where we aim to tackle some of the greatest questions and challenges and really dive in deep to what is happening right now within the AI space and more concretely, what's happening within the AI ethics space. The way that we're doing that is we're gathering some of the best and brightest minds in their respective fields to come and talk to me about what they're working on, how they see the state of the world, what is some of the information that they can bring from the outside world and tell us about here on this show. So I want to mention that we do not stop the conversation here. If anything that you enjoyed in this conversation you would like to continue talking about, I encourage you to go into the Are You A Robot Slack where we can... Keep discussing this at length for days, for weeks, however long you want to. I really would encourage you to jump in there, introduce yourself, let us know what you're working on and how you see the world, what some of your greatest thoughts are on AI ethics or some of the challenges that you think AI needs to go through before it can be better adopted or before it becomes more ubiquitous in our lives. Last but not least I will mention that we have an incredible sponsor Ethics Grade is doing some amazing work when it comes to rating the different companies within this AI space. So if you don't know what Ethics Grade is doing, they're an ESG ratings company and they give ratings about the AI ethics programs in different companies. You'll hear Fionn talk about this a little bit later in the actual conversation because she's fascinated with what they are doing. And I highly encourage you, if you want to see what these different ratings are, go click the link below in the description and you can see all of the ratings from companies like Facebook to TikTok to Clubhouse and even non-tech companies like Toyota or other car manufacturing companies, Volkswagen, you name it. It's really fascinating to see who takes ethics, AI ethics, seriously and who doesn't. And so, with that, I'll jump into the conversation that we just had with Fionn. Are you a robot? Excellent. Fionn, it is a pleasure to have you on this show. I think it would be great to start out by telling people a little bit about your background and how you managed to wind up doing stuff in the AI ecosystem.
1: Yeah, so I started my career 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, um, building e-commerce platform right before the internet bubble burst in early two thousand um it's through the journey where you know I started as a full stack developer and then I went into consulting um, on client side working for fortune 500 companies and then I eventually joined the e-commerce platform company called ATG um, it got acquired by Oracle in 2010 for 1 billion dollars um, and then after that I started my consulting business um, doing more e-commerce implementation for Fortune 500 clients as well as really shifting my role into more business strategy, especially around product marketing and product marketing technology. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've done that for 18 years. Um, Honestly, it was time for a shift because e-commerce, when I started, it was considered enterprise 2.0. But right now, like with the cloud and with, you know, big data and with the advance of AI, the excitement is in the AI world. And we call this like the Enterprise 4.0. So Enterprise 2.0 mm-hmm. was when, you know, web was just coming into mainstream and, you know, all these e-commerce online store guests, uh, uh become popular. And then 3.0 is with the whole cloud movement. And then 4.0 is where we are right now is where the action is, you know, AI combining with all the data you get with all these big social media platforms, right? The the data part and the increasing power in machines, um, the two things together make AI possible. And that's where we are. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in this chapter of my life, I, I call this a new chapter of my life, I need to do something that is not only exciting for me, but also doing something that is good for the world. Like, honestly, mm. I don't think I need more money at this point. I have run a successful consulting business. So what it is that I'm looking for when I join Fairly as a co-founder is really you know, something that I can continue to learn from uh, because you can ne- never stop learning in the technology world. Mm-hmm. Um, but totally. at the same time, it has something that is you know, meaningful and purposeful and it's not going to be make money for the sake of making money. So
0: mm-hmm. That's why There's a little Fairly. depth to it. Yeah, it makes complete sense. So can you tell us a little bit more about Fairly? Like what are some use cases and let's dive into exactly what you're doing.
1: Sure. So Fairly's idea came from my co-founder, uh, David Van Buren. He's the CEO and co-founder. He had one AI startup uh, under his belt. Um, it got acquired by a company in the UK. It's through that journey where he really realized there's no oversight on what the data scientists are doing. Um, that startup was using NLP um, to do cyberbullying detection on social media, and as you could imagine, there's a lot of like real ethical issues around a parental control app like that. Um, and none of the data scientists were, you know, really trained on humanities or social science. So, as the head data scientist, uh, my co-founder, um, he eventually became the CEO of that company, um, and like, you know, build a team of twenty data scientists. It's through that journey where he was he started as a practitioner, and he came from an academia world. Like he studied at Cornell and Berkeley in in philosophy and cognitive science, right? So he had all these experiences as an academic in academics and then become a practicing data scientist and then eventually leading the company as a senior executive. He had a full view from, you know, all the way from the bottom to the up of what needs to be done. And there's certainly gaps um, that needs to be filled, especially from an AI governance uh, perspective. And that's why he started Fairly. Uh, he and I met actually at Founder Institute. It is a preseed accelerator for those that who don't know. So we graduated from Founder Institute in the top two percent out of 4,500 companies around the world. And then with Black Lives Matter, right? Um, so this was last year. We just started the company around April 2020. So before mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, which was like end of May 2020. Uh, when George Floyd's um, incident happened, right before that, we had to explain to people there's like biases in your AI. There's like you know some really bad things happening, yeah. you know, especially around you know uh, uh, policing using facial recognition technology and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you know, unfortunately, George Floyd happened, and then all of a sudden everyone knows now that there's like biases in AI, especially around facial recognitions for policing. So that really accelerated our timeline as a startup as it became a much easier sell. Um, And to be honest with you, um, we thought it would be the startups that would be interested in our product like ours, Uh we're helping you, you know, do risk mitigation on your AI, making sure your AI is not biased. a lot of startups we talk to, you know, they know it's an issue, but until there's regulations, no one is forcing them to do it and it's just not top of their mind. Interesting. Um, there's no financial incentive to do it at this point, right? So hmm. we, we had a hard time selling to startups. Uh, we had one startup as a client and that's how we know that it's not a right fit. But at the same time, as we're trying to find a product market fit right, as a startup, we went to a lot of conferences, tried to talk to as many you know people as possible. And it was really the tier one financial services companies that were interested okay. in talking to us, right? It was like, you know, the Barclays, the Travelers, you know, you name it, all the big banks and insurance companies. So um, that's how we found where our product market fitted, really. Like from then on, we really focused on, Focus our first go-to-market in the financial services industry, and that has huh. proven to be, you know, the right play for us um, because financial services is a highly regulated industry. There's a lot of money on the line, and they have money to spend on, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: making sure that they don't have bias in their models. And if you follow the news, like there's the Apple Card, Apple Credit Card uh, that came yeah. out. A couple of years ago with Goldman Sachs where, where you know, it, it was a big news, um, that it, it was basically sexist, right? So that all that issue is like top of mind for all the financial services companies we talk to. Um, another data point where how we know that financial services is where we need to do our initial go to market is with, um, we just graduated from Accenture's FinTech Innovation Lab mm-hmm. and We actually didn't apply initially. They found us and encouraged Uh us to apply. So, like that's another proof point. Like they see that what we're offering is a good fit for their market needs. So we ended up doing the Accenture FinTech Innovation Lab in Q1 this year. So from January to March, and we there were 20 startups in the cohort, and we were the youngest company in the cohort. And mm-hmm. I believe we were the one that had the most traction. We walked out with two POCs in the works. I don't think any other companies in the cohort had any POCs oh, when they graduated from the lab. So that is another proof point. And the lab was really another really good testing ground for us. There's a reason why it's called the lab because there's a lot of opportunities for us to test out our product market fit and like what we're building. Is it like actually useful for? Um, these tier one banks, right? These are very creative meeting. We meet like at least over a hundred people with titles like head of risk, you know, global head mm-hmm. of AI, you know, model validation team, things like that. Um, that really help home, help us hone in our, not only our product market fit, but also like what we actually need, need to build. Um, I don't know how much you would know about the startup world, but like every startup startup book would tell you, don't build anything until, you know, someone actually <laughs> wants to buy it. And I feel like yeah. that's what we had exactly after the lab is like, oh, we get all these requirements of what people actually want to buy. And now we just need to go and build. Uh,
0: exactly. That is incredible. And so do you feel the fintechs wanted to be involved or should I say not even the fintechs, the bigger banks and like you said, these financial institutions they're interested in what you're doing because of the regulation that they have to play within these certain constraints and they know that there is a huge risk to them not doing it correctly and they may have to be punished by the regulations. So for them, it's more likely to be interested in what you, you're you doing at Fairly. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And, like, uh, to be fair, though, like, there's definitely, you know, data scientists we talked to, they are, you know, well aware of the Apple Card issue now. So they are all doing, mm. you know, bias mitigation at this point, and they don't want to be the one caught in the news, the next news yeah. cycle, right? So, but what the regulation actually forced them to do is to provide evidence that they are doing bias mitigation, right? So that is a big piece of, like, yeah. where okay. fairly helps solve Um pin point is you know really p- providing standardized testing that you are doing bias mitigation and there's evidence to prove it
0: yeah let's talk about that standardized testing for a minute are you creating a standardized method of AI compliance
1: so there is existing framework um, going back to like it's a highly regulated right highly regulated industry right so there's existing mm-hmm. guidelines and framework that the financial services companies need to follow. And we are, those guidelines are general enough, but not yet AI specific at this point, but there's definitely AI specific changes coming. Uh, all the banks know it. Um, the professor we're working with from NYU um, also you know, have, have a, a, a view on like what the changes are. So we definitely are preparing for those changes but at the same time it is not a new problem for financial services because they have been using models for decades even though they're not mm-hmm. ai models they're more like statistical quant models right but the you know the, the 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 requirement to provide evidence that you are you know doing proper testing building challenger models um it is an existing problem that um can be that that needs to be solved because mm-hmm. it, it just become a bigger problem because of AI, because like it used to be the case that they can take six months to validate a statistical model. It will be fine. But with AI, right? you build a model, you pass validation, push it to production. there's data drift, performance change, accuracy change, it needs to be retrained. Now, every time you retrain the model and change something, it needs to go through the validation cycle again. And you just cannot mm-hmm. have six-month validation cycles anymore, right? Like by the time uh-huh. you finish six months, your model is probably out of date in production. Yeah. So that that is the big issue and problem for the banks right now. If, like all the banks we talked to right, are trying to move to the cloud or already migrated to the cloud so they can do more AI. It, it's, it is a strategic priority for them to do AI. Um, And Mm -hmm. especially with COVID, right? There's a lot of um, cost-cutting measure. So they have less staff, but they need to build more AIs and these AI need to go into production faster. So these are all like confluence of problems together that makes it an interesting problem uh, for fairly to solve and the Hmm. bank is desperate to solve.
0: Do you feel that the new regulations that are coming out in the EU... Have shaken this world, or have shaken up other sectors?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, so the the customers we've been talking to, right? A few of them actually sat on, you know, those governing committees. So they all know like it's coming. It's not a question.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> like they are all preparing for it. Um, so like definitely, we see it. I, again like why we're we ha- we our initial go to market is financial services is because they already know <laughs> these regulations before it was published last week so that's why we're playing there i think other industries definitely less incentivized to like you know act as quickly as the banks at this moment um there's certainly you know highly relevant Proposal proposed regulations in the proposals um, for certain industries, especially around the you know, apply AI companies that's using social media. I think one of the proposals Mm -hmm. is that you're banning using use of social data to do anything that has to do with like children, basically. Right. So I think that would have a huge impact on like a lot of the AI startups that are you know trying to use social data to do. Mm. Uh, to build
0: a product. Yeah. I find it really interesting because you were talking about how when you first went out and you thought that the startups were going to be the ones that would be most interested in this, like building a foundation the right way. And in my mind, I I could see that rationale. I thought, yeah, of course, it's much easier to start out on the right foot than to go back and try and retroactively fix everything years later. And so in my opinion, I understood. But when you said, no, they're not interested because they're not incentivized and there's no repercussions. So for them, and I know working at startups, there's a million fires that you have to put out every day, right? And this is not the highest priority for them because it's not that gigantic flame in front of their face that's going to crash the business. On the other hand, I've spoken with people and they've talked to me about how important it is and how it's like this. It's like a sleeper risk because although you don't have the regulation telling you that you need to do this or else you're going to be fined. What you do have is one of these fiascos like you spoke about, like with the Apple credit card, where it's just going to destroy the reputation of a business. And it's going to be something that is so detrimental to your what you're trying to accomplish if you find out that, A, there's some kind of bias and you get thrown into the news cycle and it's the next thing like, oh. And then it creates this loss of trust, which we all know is so much more of a pain or it's so much more difficult to surpass that hurdle. Once you've created this lack of trust with your customers and with the public, it's very hard to come back from that. So it's an interesting to hear you say that. It's very interesting to hear you say that and to, to show these theories that I had in my mind, which, yeah, I can see both ways. Now, let's jump into a little bit more of this way that you're doing it. What I really would like to know, like you're taking these existing models and are you with your company fairly, are you using any AI or is it just like looking at the algorithms and being a third-party service to give the check and say, all right, this one passes the test. Is it automated in any way? Can you break down what's, what's actually happening?
1: Yep. We always get that, asked that question. And the answer is no. Currently, we're not using any AI to check AI. Um, certainly, it is a possibility in the future if we figuring out a way that doesn't, you know, like create a black box that's checking another black box. Like it needs to be transparent. It needs to be accountable. Um, so the way we're doing it is really facilitating the process because in the banking industry, there's a very clear framework called three lines of defense, right? Your first line of defense is your model developers, your model owners, your model users. Your second line of defense is your model validation team and model governance team. And then your third line of defense is your internal auditors. So right now, the process is like the model developers own, you know, the models they build, they have to test it once they are satisfied themselves, they pass it to the model validation team. The model validation team have to independently reproduce and test the models. And like some some banks who are more rigorous, like they would have, they would actually hire, you know, the smarter people on the validation team to try to break whatever model the first line of defense people build, right? So they actually put a smarter team in the second line of defense. And then like those, if the second line of defense is satisfied, with whatever model the first line built, then that's when it get passed to to uh, internal audit or production. Um, so the role of internal audit is just really to make sure processes and procedures are followed. They actually don't check whether it was you know uh, built correctly, right? Like, so it is really the second line of defense that is the gatekeeper at this point at the banks. So our role is really to facilitate. The current gap between first and second line of defense. We are not the one that says this model is passed and good to go to production. We still have the second line of defense, that human in the loop, to ultimately make the decision that you know everything checked out, um, every procedures follow, all the standardized testing has been passed, and you know those were the correct tests to be done for this certain type of models. So all that stuff. So we call ourselves, I think, AI compliance in a box. But really, like, the analogy is really TurboTax. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar. I don't know if they use TurboTax in Frankfurt <laughs> or, or Spain. So it's like a tax software if, yeah. if you ever have to file personal tax, right? So it's like, you know, they take a set of rules from from the IRS, from the, from the uh, tax authority, right? and translate that into a qualitative and quantitative um, questionnaire, right? So we are the Um, TurboTax for AI compliance. So we are taking qualitative and quantitative information and combining that, guide you through the process, make sure all the proper tests, all the numbers sync up, and then we provide you with a report, right? But ultimately, like I make recommendations, say, hey, there's a red flag here. Like this number doesn't look correct, or you know this this model's accuracy looks too low, whatever. But then it's not our job to say, well, this model shouldn't go to production. Right? Just like oh. it's not the it's not TurboS2's job to say, okay, you shouldn't file this tax. I give you the warning that you shouldn't <laughs> file this tax. But ultimately, if you still want to file your text and get audited, <laughs> it's it's your choice, right? Mm.
0: Okay, I see where you're coming from that. So you're helping guide the practitioners through and you're giving them the the tools, but you aren't making anything automated and you also aren't stopping them from doing anything.
1: That's right. Like like we we'll give you warnings and label, like we'll definitely certain flag, hey, this section is missing. Like you haven't done this kind of validation yet. Um, there are certain things we are we are automating, like the standardized testing, but it's not using AI statistical analysis, so it's very different, right? Um, hmm. So, um, so there's that efficiency we're building in for things that can be done transparently. Like we we're not going to give you a black box algorithm and say, "Hey, you pass," right? That's uh-huh. just not going to work from the internal auditor's point of view.
0: So. Do you think there's a way that companies can develop more ethical algorithms?
1: So we are actually looking at um, partnering with a field. um, uh, uh, um, So in Canada, we have something called MyTex. It's a government grant that helped you establish research groups with research partnership with uh, universities. So that's where what we're looking at, and one of the professor we are uh, going to work with has a research interest in ethical AI. So there is certainly um, a lot of interest in that field. I wouldn't say like it's a very advanced field at this point. Um, what does ethical AI even means, right? There has often been there has been over 200 guidelines published in the last few mm-hmm. years around AI totally. governance, ethical AI, responsible AI. So it is still a very green field. It's like a hot space. I have to say, like there's, we're certainly not the only startup looking at in this space right now. Um, I think the ultimately the for at least for us, the goal is like, what do the customer want? Is it like just ethical? At this point, I can tell you, honestly, there's no one that only look at ethics without any, you know, actually financial incentive behind it. Mm. Unfortunately, that's the world. Like, I know that's what consumer want and that's what we want to help. Like the trust thing you talk about, I think that is like definitely right on the spot. Like ultimately, you want the customer to be able to trust the AI that you're using and building and how do you your customer trusts you. I think it's through all these, like, you know, framework and guideline and processes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the closest thing is right now is the EU regulation being proposed. Like, that's the closest guideline that has been, you know, actually proposed. And most likely will be adopted into regulation in two to four years. I think that's what I heard. Um, yeah, it is the same governing body that, you know, came out with GDPR. So if you follow GDPR, right, it was it, it has become like the gold standard of data privacy laws around the world. So the same governing body was the one that came out with the AI regulations proposal. So our view is that it will become, you know, the golden standard for AI regulations around the world. And then um, the way they have categorized like AI is like by high risk, low, uh, limited risk. Um, and then like, I forgot the third one is like low risk or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it is that framework. I think it's closest to what ethical AI means. Like it needs to be high risk in that category. That's when you have to go through these additional auditing and uh, certification. I think it's what they have proposed in the, in the regulation also. So I'm if curious, you want to so talk about,
0: yeah. Oh, that's sorry. It. Go ahead.
1: No, I was saying, so if you want to like talk about like ethically, I, I think that's the closest definition right now mm-hmm. that, you know, a governing body has agreed to.
0: So have you thought about because of that new regulation that's coming out, does it make sense to try and focus all of your energy in to Europe and try and have your go-to-market be there? Because it seems like there's going to be more traction and there is more regulation. So there's going to be more companies that are looking to be more ethical.
1: So we are definitely a global company from day one. We have been working with banks in Canada, US, as well as Europe. Um, The Accenture Fintech Innovation Lab that we just graduated from is actually from London, UK. So we have been talking to European uh, clients already. Um, and yes, the consensus is definitely laws are coming, regulations coming in Europe first, then US, then Canada. But at the same time, because of COVID, I guess that's the other like, thing that we learned is it's relatively easy to now talk to people in any time zone because mm-hmm. you just have to jump on the Zoom awesome. call. From a sales perspective, it, it wasn't a problem at all for us to you know. Talk to a client here in US, and then you know, jump on the next call to talk to someone in London, and then back to Canada. Um, but the other interesting we learn is because we have this exposure in three countries, right? So I would say because the Canadian government has done a good job in uh, funding AI research in Canada for the last you know more than one more than one decade, right? We are definitely seeing that you know ethics in AI and research in ethical AI in Canada is definitely, you know, in the forefront. Um, Like a lot of the banks we talked to in Canada um, have adopted some of these like ethical AI um, principles and procedures already, um, even before Europe came out with the regulations. Mm. Um, It almost seems like, you know, when we, because we are in Canada, right? We started in Canada, we talked to all the banks and we only have five big banks. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and they are all aware of like AI ethical issues versus like when we talk to banks in US, it almost seems like it's just a new issue versus you know, <laughs> Europe is like, Oh yeah, we know it's coming and we're working on so I would say like US is the lacquer in this case in mm-hmm. the ethical AI space in the banking industry. <laughs>
0: So there's another thing that I wanted to touch on which I find fascinating and it's this communication gap that we find between social science and data people, whether that's a data engineer, a data scientist, a machine learning engineer. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how we can address that communication gap.
1: It is hard. And the reason I tell you like I came from a computer science background, not, not like data science background. And I also find there's a lot of different terminology because my co-founder is the data scientist, right? So when we talk, mm-hmm. there's a lot of like, even though we're both technical, there's still a gap. So definitely like when someone that doesn't even study, like had a, a, a technical background um, in social science, like the gap is even bigger. And we've seen it, um, and my co-founder definitely have seen it in his last startup. Right now, there's no real tool or processes or procedures to help solve that gap. Um, there's a lot of startup that is coming up with tool that, you know, can explain AI to non-technical, non-specialist um, you know, uh, social scientists, be a social scientists or, you know, even business decision-maker executives who doesn't have a, a data science or technical background, right?
2: Mm. The, yeah.
1: the challenge there is uh, actually twofold. One is, can you actually explain AI black box? There was an article by the MIT Technology Review that kind of used this analogy, right? Docs have, like smell that like has the ability to smell that is like 100 times better than human or something like that but can you ever explain how does the dog do that how can they smell 100 times better than human like and that's what we're trying to do with like all these explainable ai like you know you know talk it's like can can a human ever be able to explain how did the ai come up with the prediction hundred times better than a human Like, Mm. I think it's a hard problem to solve. And I know a lot of startups are trying to solve it. But when you really dig down to what explainable AI means right now, a lot of the solution out there is really about, um, it's really like a debugging tool, right? Like, Mm. you go back and use counterfactual analysis, which is like, you know, you replace this variable with that variable and now you see the difference. So now you know, oh, wait, that that parameter did make the difference in the results and therefore, you know, it must be a factor. (laughs) Um, It's very rudimentary at this point, I would say. Um, Mm -hmm. So like part of our definition, like fairly definition of explainable AI really is to try to capture and understand what decisions, what qualitative and quantitative decision the data scientist is making. And from capturing those details, that is a potential way of helping the social scientists understand, oh, that's why this result was like that, because the data scientists made this decision in the beginning as they were developing the algorithm. I think mm. I need to go down to that uh, lineage. I think that's another word that has been used commonly. Yeah. of like how this decision was made while the algorithms were being developed rather than going back to like what I was saying, like the debugging tool type is like, now, you're pro- you're, now your model is in production. Oh, and there's a bias issue. Now we're used to debugging explainability tool to figure out why was there a bias issue. Right? It's just fighting, mm. going back to it is like fighting fire um, um, constantly if you're using it that way.
0: Yeah. So I find that fascinating because you're actively giving people outside of the data science world or the machine learning world a tool for them to understand and better mitigate these biases. Is that what I'm understanding?
1: So we're giving the data scientists a real-time feedback as they are developing their model for, you know, we have um, standardized testing and checks that are in mm-hmm. place. So as they are developing, if something doesn't look right, they will get an alert basically. Um, that's how yeah. I would phrase it at this point without giving it too much away. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that, you know, they need to take care of something you know, as they are developing. And,
0: and so the, the really interesting piece for me is that what you said around the social scientists who can come and they can... It's not about the debugging with tech. It's more about the understanding of where the, science, the data scientist's head is at and what the data scientist is trying to do, what the problem they're trying to solve is. And so you're helping trying to bridge that gap. Exactly.
1: Exactly. I think you're right on on that. Um, The challenge there, again, is like, how do you do it in a way so that, like, even if we capture the decision of the data scientist, it would be easily understood by non-data scientists, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the problem we're trying to solve. Like, um, you know, it's probably going to involve some, you know, dashboards and um, visualization. Um, type of decision tools at this point. And um, the other fact is like what do... So there's a difference between what the social scientists want to see and what the end consumer want to see, right? There actually has Mm -hmm. been a study. Like the end consumer actually doesn't want to know exactly how the data scientists came up with the decision. They don't need (laughs) to know the details. All they want to know is like proper procedures and, and processes were followed and that the decision was fair. Like mm-hmm. so we are working on a consumer report and you know that's that's exactly the type of information we'll provide. It won't be like as detailed as like what an internal auditor need to know for a mm-hmm. consumer, right? And that's going back to like how do custom printing build trust with the customer, right? Um
2: Yeah.
1: And I would be interested because I know Ethics Grade has the grading uh uh scorecard, right? So it's similar yeah. idea, um, but more on, I guess, an individual case-by-case basis.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, do you feel that explainability will ever be something that we can properly do? Because as you mentioned, the dog, we know that a dog's sense of smell is much better than humans, but we can't really explain that, nor can we create... uh, a human with that kind of sense of smell or we can't like put it in a bottle, I guess, and, and sell it. So do you feel like explainability is going to be as time goes on and we have more advancements in this field? We're going to be able to have something like that where we can say, hey, explainability is like this or not explainability, but the model can be explained like this.
1: It is an active research area, I can tell you that. And there definitely has been debate in the academic circle whether exactly the question you posed, whether explainable AI can be done, right? If you're trying to, you know, have these super power AI algorithm to make decisions that humans cannot make. And then now you say they have to explain how they made it. Um, But I've also seen research where, you know, like it's 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 looking like you know if you really truly want to be able to do explainable AI then it has to start with the actual um AI algorithm methodologies itself, and there has been you know certain type of like neural network can be transformed into more of a linear regression uh uh, uh, uh algorithm in the end so that you can explain it that way mm. um honestly um I'm not a research data scientist so I know I only know that like it's an active area of research and I can see that certain type of algorithm can be explained um, but ev- like everything else there's limitation right once once you have this feature then there's a limitation on another feature
2: mm-hmm. so
1: it would have to be a compromise is what I'm seeing in the right now what's been published.
0: Hmm. Well, let's talk a, a minute about why you feel it is important for people outside of data scientists and those that are building the models to be able to like look behind the veil. And so why should social scientists or should anyone, like the other day I was speaking to, Uh, a guy and he was talking about how important it is to have sociologists in the loop on this because they're really thinking these things through but they're not really that common right now in the AI world. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on why it's important to get people from the outside involved in this process.
1: Because often... um... When we work with or talk to data scientists, right, they don't think of the person behind these data. For them, it's just data. This person, you know, doesn't get a mortgage. That's fine because his whatever score doesn't pass whatever threshold the company made.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But then on the other side, there's an actual human being. If their score doesn't pass, it may ruin their. Life, you know, then like it could be a big impact for the rest of their uh, uh, life or career or family, right? Hmm. There's that disconnect. It's not just a number. It's not just a threshold. And I think the social science people can see that way better than a data scientist. At this point, hmm. there's that human connection to every piece of data that they are working with. I think that's the compensation that has been missing. Um, uh. And then going back to um, the data, the way the data scientists work, right? They, they're very excited when they get to train an algorithm and come up with a new algorithm. And then that's when, you know, the AI ethics fairness all kind of go out the door if there's no actual, you know, regulation or policy that says you must make sure all these things are checked, right? So That's the danger. Um, and then going back to you know the data social like that's why i think the social scientists are important because they can be the reminder that hey these are not just data not just numbers but there's a actual human life especially you know not just financial services mortgage right? like in the medical field like all the healthcare imaging
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: systems that's using ai to do uh, detection Right, that's another prime example. There's so many bias in data samples. Similar because like a lot of DCs are very gender specific too. For example, or race specific. Like yeah. it affects certain type of race or gender more than the other. Um, so that is something that has come up in the news as well. Um, so I think all these issues, um, until like there's actual you know proper rule and procedures that people no longer need to be reminded they need to do these kind of checks. I think there's definitely a role a social scientist has to play to keep reminding the data scientists that they work with, hey, you need to make sure you realize there's a human on the other side and how this would affect, you know, them.
0: How common have you seen, or yeah, how often have you seen that there actually is a social scientist in the loop on all of this?
1: honest answer yeah n- not at all <laughs> maybe one or two startups that we talk to will think oh yeah but i, I think it w- certainly depends on like the stage of the of the startup too mm. so um the more well-funded startup definitely have talked about it <laughs> not sure if they actually have hired one and like the other thing i think uh when you talk about social scientists right there's the new role called ai ethicists right so there has been a lot of um Um, I guess people with AI ethics as a title um, that came up in the last couple of years. And as far as I know, like not a lot of companies actually hired like (laughs) this role at this point. Um, Maybe except the big tech companies like Google, Facebook, you know. Well, Google mm-hmm. had one and then they fired her. And then, like, yeah. they rehired someone else. Now. But, anyways, um, so I think, uh, and then because we are in the startup world where you talk to a lot of feces, uh, venture capitalists, right? Uh, the feel from their side is like, yeah, it looks like it's just, you know, still uh, you know, popular topic at conferences at this point to talk mm-hmm. about AI ethics and responsible AI, but can it actually make money? Do people actually care? And from the you know investor point of view, you know, I, I think we're starting to see that change definitely because like we're a startup and we're getting funding um, doing you know, AI ethics and compliance. Um, but I don't. I think it would be harder for us if we're just going out and say we're doing AI ethics without the compliance <laughs> part. To be honest,
0: <laughs> because the the ethics part doesn't make money.
1: Unfortunately,
0: yes. Yeah. That's the sad sad piece here. And it is very interesting that you talk about how there has been that job title that's been created recently. And maybe it just means that it's still too new. And so people and institutions and companies, they're not interested yet because a lot of them are struggling just to put the machine learning into production, let alone think about the repercussions that it may have. Sadly, as we both know, and probably many of the listeners out there know, these things, it's not like you can just put something into production and then try and work. And then it's like, okay, next step, let's figure out the ethics piece of this. Because these things need to be happening in parallel. It's not something that can be happening in a, its own little isolated box. And then you say, all right, now let's figure out the ethics. And, and then you go off and you do that because... That's a great way to set yourself up for failure, or like we mentioned earlier, just a complete disaster and, and loss of trust. So, the I think I have a, one more question before winding down, but it's it's more around like diversity and diversity in this whole sphere or the AI. Atmosphere, the AI ecosystem, we could call it. And I know you have some thoughts on it, but are there ways that you feel we could better have this inclusion and see more diversity, whether that's hiring more AI ethicists, hiring more uh, sociologists? What are some actual steps that we can take that will help us when we're creating AI to make sure that we have this inclusion and and diversity in mind?
1: Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I think that certainly is something that is in most of the AI ethics guidelines out there is to have a, you know, diverse team as your, you know, base of uh, data science. Like you cannot just have, you know, a, a team of data scientists that have, you know, just like all white men. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, being a female and Asian born in Hong Kong, I can tell you I have my biases. I have my conscious and unconscious bias. I cannot guarantee mm-hmm. the algorithm I built would be free of bias. Um, so I think that's why having that, you know, multiple um angles from different type of background people from different type of background not even race and gender to be honest with you not even race gender religion i think it's also you know different socio economic status if you're talking about you're building a product that has you know financial inclusivity involved Mm -hmm. that's if that's what you're building right so um that's one thing so i I personally feel that that's why a product like ours is important where we are standardizing all these checks and balances so you're not relying on any single human being to be un- uh, to be unbiased because none of us is totally free of bias mm-hmm. um, and then when you actually look at there's a actually good uh, research article from Brookings Institute like the goal of like AI is really around um, They they do a two axes. One is like you know how predictive your AI is, and then one is like how biased your AI is. Right? What you want is really in the upper right quadrant, the most predictive but least biased. It's not gonna be like 100% predictive and 100% free of bias. Right? We're all striving for that top right quadrant. Um, uh, that's that's the way I think AI in general has to be because it's a probabilistic um tool algorithm is never going to be 100% guaranteed.
0: Someone told me yesterday this, and I, I find it fascinating. I have to re-quote them that models like the machine learning models are always wrong, but sometimes they're useful.
1: Yes, that's from George Box, a famous British statistician. Is that it?
0: Yeah. yeah. So And it's is it not machine learning models? It's just models, right?
1: Just models, yeah. All models That's are wrong, it. but some are useful.
0: <laughs> there it is. Yes. That's the quote I was looking for. I couldn't remember who exactly said it, but I'm glad that you remember. So I've got one more question for you that we ask everybody at the end. It is, Fionn, are you a robot?
1: No, I'm not. <laughs> um, definitely not. I think... Mm, I, the difference, I think, between human and robot is um, intuition. But then I had this debate with my co-founder, he said, like, machine learning is, like, intuition is really just gathering a lot of data and, like, coming up with a result and that's what machines are doing. So I don't know, <laughs> but I definitely do not want to be a robot. <laughs>
0: Well, this has been fascinating talking with you and I really am excited for what you all are doing at Fairly. I think it is a great tool that more or everybody needs to be using, especially if you are in the AI space. And I also find these little tidbits of wisdom that you're sharing with us around the ethics wouldn't have been as big of a sale point as the compliance it just shows you the state that we're at right now it shows you what the the market is and how companies are looking at this and hopefully it will change and we don't know but i think what you all are doing it fairly is definitely the right first step so i congratulate you and i wish you the best of success and thanks again for coming on here
1: Thank you so much. It was great pressure talking to you.